Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast. I'm Dr. Kathy Weston. I'm very, very excited to welcome Julie Kettlewell on the podcast this morning. How are you, Julie? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Julie, it's very exciting because we're actually recording our very first podcast on video format. So this is <laughs> this is exciting. I don't normally get to see my lovely podcast guests. So this is fantastic. And I'm just going to read out your official bio and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about your role and your job before we get into the very exciting topic of metacognition. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So Julie is Assistant Director of Huntington Research School and Content Specialist for the Education Endowment Foundation, specializing in effective learning behaviors. She's a teacher of psychology and assistant head at Huntington School, and she's passionate about equipping students with the skills to be effective learners. Well, you're very warm welcome to you. You sound like an incredibly busy person, I have to say. Well, it's um, it's a fascinating thing to do to have the, these different roles, but actually I find that they overlap and they complement each other really, really well. So within the EEF, my, my new role there as content specialist is looking at, as you said, as effective learning behaviours, which incorporates a, a wide range of behaviours. Metacognition is one, but we also have parental engagement, special educational needs, and social and emotional learning is involved in there, and as well as looking at improving students' behaviour. So effective learning behaviours is a really broad range. And I think what we've, we've really reflected on at the Education Endowment Foundation is that these things aren't in isolation of each other. And I think that's why I'm so excited to talk to you today, Cathy, because, you know, your specialism really looking at engaging with parents. And what we're talking about often around metacognition is about just being classroom behaviour, you know, really working with teachers around that to support their pupils. But what we do recognise is that these, these all overlap and interlink and intertwine together. And by developing all of them and thinking about them, how they um, interrelate, we can make really effective learners. So that's, that's my role for, for the Education Endowment Foundation. For those people who don't know, the Education Endowment Foundation did set up the research school network of which Huntington Research School is one, located over here in York. So my work for the research school is very similar to that, but really looking at equipping schools with, with the, um, the best possible evidence so that they can make a difference for pupils. And obviously in my role within my own school, as well as teaching as assistant head, I'm always trying to do that as well and bring to our senior leadership team, sharing with them some of the best possible evidence. So although I've got different hats that I wear at different times, as I say, they really do feel like they complement each other and, and it all comes together quite nicely. And what is so exciting is you and I occupy sort of different worlds, but we are both 
passionate about sharing what is optimal in terms of the research evidence. Um, oh, absolutely. It's really exciting to meet someone else as passionate about that. And you and I are there to, I mean, in every single talk I give in school to teachers, I'm always talking about the Education Endowment Foundation. It should be right up there, you know, and everybody's links on there every morning, every week, checking in with the Education Endowment Foundation, looking at what they're doing, everything that they, it's a hub isn't it for the optimal research oh it really is and, and, and what we hope is that it's, it's accessible for people for both teachers and for, for parents and you know lots and lots of free resources just about with this um, united aim really of making a difference for children and giving them the best possible chances for, for excellent outcomes so yes it, it's great to have an opportunity just to make people aware of some of those great resources and what I'm really excited to do today is to share a few things that go beyond the guidance report that people can take away and are very, very welcome to use in, in their own settings with their own children. Brilliant. So we're talking about metacognition and it, it I, I love it as a word. It sounds brilliant. It's quite fancy, but let's break it down a little bit. Tell us exactly what we're talking about when we use that term. See, I don't love it as a word, Cathy. Um, I think it's really abstract. I think it, people find it overcomplicated. And I think it needs discussion around it like this. I think people switch off a bit sometimes with it because they think, well, what does it actually mean? It can be a bit woolly. And we need to really think about, well, what does this mean for the children I work with? What does that mean for my children? What does it look like in practice? So I think the first thing that I want to say is it's a buzzword at the moment that and, and the past few years, actually, since the guidance report came out, it's been so popular all over Twitter. You know, as, as you've mentioned, the Education Foundation have the teaching and learning toolkit and it's right up there. And so people are like, oh, let's do metacognition. But it's not new. And I think that's the first thing that's important to say. Metacognition has been around for almost 50 years. And it was an American psychologist, Flavelle, who actually first introduced the term. And it's what we've always known to be great teaching. So it's not about let's start doing loads and loads of new things um, and, and stop doing all our current practice. It's very much about if we understand what it is, we can just try and be a bit more explicit about developing it in places. But as, as you talk about it and understand it, you'll think, oh, yes, this is what I've done lots of aspects of this already. So the, for those people who are familiar with, with the Education Endowment Foundation guidance report around metacognition, they will notice that it's called metacognition and self-regulated learning. And I think it's just worth mentioning that. So self-regulated learning is an umbrella term. And it incorporates metacognition, but it also incorporates cognition and motivation. So in that, that aim that we have of developing these, these lovely self-regulated learners, we do need to think about all three aspects. And I think that's just something for people to be aware of, that we shouldn't obsess too much about metacognition. The cognition and the motivation are just as important there. So cognition is very much about the mental processes involved in knowing, understanding and learning. So that can be memory techniques. It's also the actual knowledge itself. You can't be metacognitive around something if you don't know the content. So the cognition is so, so important for us to think about, you know, what knowledge is really important for this task and checking the child has it rather than thinking about, let's just support them with the metacognition as well. Metacognition is then about how the learners monitor and purposefully direct their learning how they decide, right, what cognition is appropriate at this time? What strategies are best for me to use at this time? But you can't be metacognitive if you don't have the cognition. 
And then finally, the, the huge challenge for us as teachers and parents is motivation. So that's the child's willingness to engage their metacognition and their cognitive skills, apply them to learning. And it's not quite as black and white as that as three categories. They obviously do overlap. So as I talk about metacognition a bit more, you'll see that actually there's quite a few aspects of that that do overlap with motivation, for example. But I think it is important to consider how these three different aspects really work together to create effective learners who are able to self-regulate. But today we are focusing more on the metacognition side. And it's really about supporting and training children so that they can be more independent learners. There's a lot of talk about that, particularly coming back after partial school closures, about the real need to support children to develop those skills to be independent learners. And learners who have intrinsic motivation and you, you can probably get from that, it is really broad. It covers this really broad range of different skills and actions. And I think for me, what, what I love about it is if we think about what a metacognitive learner would be about, would look like in our classrooms, it's all about, rather than me as a teacher putting all my energies in and kind of dragging passive learners through my lessons, instead I've got really highly engaged learners who are you know thinking really independently about how to take the kind of so along with a really enthusiastic teacher who's guiding the children you've also got them bringing their passion and their ability to self-regulate through that and you know that that's so exciting and it means that the children are working just as hard as the teacher and the parents which i think I, hasn't always been the case yeah i think that's the beauty of it that we're unlocking something in the child rather than just the sort of the heavy lifting of sort of instructive teaching that, that it's it's a rich process it's an exciting process and um, as you're speaking I think I have the word scaffolding in my head like I'm trying to you know I love that concept of an adult scaffolding a child's thinking and I'm wondering is that a sort of synonym for what we're talking about Scaffolding is definitely a huge part of it. And one of the graphics I'd like to share, which is why we've done this visually today, is around the scaffolding framework. That certainly is a key part of it. Yes, definitely. I think the other thing that, that's just worth mentioning at this point is that developing metacognition will, will be really useful for all children. But what we do know is that our disadvantaged children are less likely to have metacognitive strategies. There's a huge amount of research that's shown that a study by Callan being one of those that, that I've looked at that shows that if we have a child who's um let's think about doing a, a mathematical problem and they're, they're trying it one way and it doesn't work so then they might think oh I'll try it a different way and they use those different strategies they're metacognitive but if you only have one strategy and you've tried that and it didn't work well you have nowhere else to go you just sit back and you're passive so by really equipping children with these strategies, we can make it more effective. And as I say, the research does suggest that's going to be particularly important for our disadvantaged pupils. So for me, it feels like metacognition is a really key way that we can try and close the attainment gap between our disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged pupils. So that's one massive benefit of sort of focusing the mind on, on this issue. What are the other benefits? Because surely, you know, metacognitive strategies can impact hugely on academic performance. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a vast array of research. As I say, there's over 50 years of research here and analysis that supports its effectiveness that the Education Down Foundation Teaching and Learning Toolkit has it right up there as one of the most effective interventions, plus seven months of additional progress on average from, from these interventions. I think it's really interesting as well that 
it comes into so many different aspects as well. So actually, if we look at the other strands of the teaching and learning toolkit that are up there with the highest impact, things like feedback, secondary homework and peer tutoring, they all have aspects of metacognition and independent learning within them. So actually developing highly effective independent learners comes into so many of those, those other aspects. So, you know, there's lots of evidence showing that this is going to make students more likely to do well academically. We also know it's more likely to make them successful individuals after school. You know, if we think about people in professional occupations, like a surgeon, for example, they need to be metacognitive. They need to be able to plan really effectively, to monitor their progress and to be able to evaluate. And they also need to be able to think about if this goes wrong, what will I do? What strategies will I use? You know, how will I deal with the unexpected? So developing pupils who are able to do that, able to self-regulate and be metacognitive is really powerful, not just for academic success, but also for those bigger skills that they need. A little caveat, though, that I would say there is when we look at the uh, teaching and learning toolkit, and as I say, that, that figure that jumps out to everybody is plus seven months of impact. Well, there's lots of interventions that have been done. If you click on the projects, you can see there. And there's one which had plus nine months of progress, which is incredible. But there's quite a few others that had plus two months or no months. So it's, it's not just about let's do metacognition. We do need to think really carefully about implementation. We need to think really carefully about how we're going to put this in place within, within a department, within a whole school, or you know, even working with one child. How are you going to develop this? And what we do know is that a one-off, right, let's, let's just train people in metacognition, is unlikely to have an impact. This is about highly ingrained habits. So we need to recognize it's going to take time to change this with children. Actually, it's going to take time for us to change it in our own behavior as well. So it's about recognizing this is going to be hard to achieve. Let's plan how to do it slowly and develop this and develop ingrained habits for children. Take time to train them and to maintain those skills. So I think it's, it's just important to say that, that it's not a promise that if we do this, it will have the impact. We really do need to think about implementation as well. And hopefully when we share the slides in a second, it will mean that anyone listening who's a classroom teacher or subject leader or head teacher, they can take this, take it into their environment and adapt it and use Absolutely. it and think about it. And there has to be a sense of collegiality around it. Yeah, Each department has to think about what it means for them. So we're Definitely. just really scaffolding that conversation and just giving people something to think about. And as you say, like any habit, it takes time to embed and sustain. And don't be frustrated if, you know, you've tried it for a few weeks and you're not seeing that impact. It will take time. You know, you're, if you're working with 13 year olds, that's 13 years of, of ingrained habits and ways of thinking. So it's just being patient with that over time. Yeah, but as you've suggested earlier, Julie, this is a gorgeous time to actually focus on this issue because parents have seen firsthand in lockdown what demotivation looks like, that it's that motivating a child to sit down and approach a learning task is not easy. It is. It does require expertise. It does require guidance. And I think this is a good opportunity, you know, in September 2021 to look again at this issue. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think we are getting lots of teachers getting in touch saying we our children are not independent. They've come back less independent. And that's right through, you know, primaries post-16. 
they've come back less independent than they were before. And that's not surprising. If I think about my own teaching that I was doing remotely, because the children aren't in front of you, because you can't pick up on nonverbal cues in the same way, because you can't move around the room or work individually, it, it was much more prescriptive learning. And then suddenly they're back in my classrooms and I'm saying, why can't you be more independent? And they say, well, no, tell us what to do because that's what I was doing remotely. So this is the perfect time to start saying, right, let's relearn some of our effective learning behaviors. Let's really think about what it means to be a successful learner in my classroom. And how are we going to do that together? How will we start back on that journey? So it feels like a really exciting time to get back in and start looking at these behaviors. Okay, so let's share some fabulous slides that we hope is are going to ignite a whole conversation about metacognition in every classroom. And these are slides, are, are these slides that you've actually created yourself, Julie? So there's a mix and I'll, I'll explain that as we go through them. Now, now the one that's on, on the screen right now, as I say, those of you who are familiar with the, um, the guidance report, the EF guidance report, metacognition and self-regulated learning, might see that this is a little bit different to what's in there. So this is um, the core model that the, the research school network now use around metacognition. So the Education Endowment Foundation have created this one. And what, what we've reflected on, because since the guidance report came out, I've delivered so many sessions on metacognition, worked with so many different colleagues around it and parents and taken their feedback. And then as a working group, we've come together and said, actually, there's a few things that the guide report could be a little bit better on, a little bit clearer on. And this is a great example. So if you are using this, if you're doing any training back in school, we'd suggest this is the core model that you use, even though it's not in the guidance report. So in the guidance report, we talk about metacognitive knowledge and metacognitive regulation as if they're separate. And actually, that's not quite the case. So metacognitive regulation, if I just start with that going across the bottom. So planning. Planning happens before a task monitoring during it and evaluation afterwards but really it's more of a it's it's a nine box model because planning has three aspects to it monitoring has three and evaluation so as we present a child with a task we ask them to engage with a comprehension activity a reading comprehension task so before they start we'd want them if they're being metacognitive to be thinking Right, what do I know about this task? When have I done similar tasks to this before? What might I want to look at that will help me understand more about this task? So throughout the planning phase, they then access up at the top that knowledge of the task. They then access their knowledge of strategies and they think through, right, okay, so for a task like this, what might the best way to be to start be? I might read through it, take it a line at a time, underline the key words, put a question mark next to any words that I don't understand what they mean and so on. So they start to think through the strategies and they also, and this is where we've got real overlaps with motivation. They also in the planning phase access their knowledge of self. So they might think, Oh, I can't be bothered with this. I know I'm rubbish at these. I might as well just give up now. Or they might think, no, this really matters to me. The teacher said, didn't she, that all I need to do is work on this bit and I'll get much better. So you can see how knowledge of self, is really linked with motivation here. So throughout the planning phase, we're accessing those different aspects. Julie, can so, I just can I just interrupt? <laughs> sorry, and just ask about the when you talk about knowledge of self, just hearing that when the child decides to persist or desist, and it just sounds a little bit like the sort of the growth mindset material that it's at that point 
that that sort of psychology comes into it and they think, do you know what? I can do this. I will try. I am frustrated, but I will persevere. Is that a sort of a, is that wrong to conflate that or is that? No, there's, I totally agree. There's aspects of that within there. Yes, definitely. And, and there's also a real role that the teacher can play here as well. So sometimes our child might be doing metacognitive and do this seemingly automatically. And other times we will need to step in and support them and say, do you remember we did this last time? Yeah. Um, but we can also support them around that knowledge of self as well. And like you say, with some of that language that's used around growth mindset as well there. And I think it requires so much intuition that, of course, would have been missed during lockdown learning. The sort of watching, looking at their face in the classroom, walking around, you know, just having as a parent as well, sitting there, just watching how they are reacting to the material that they're interacting with. So it is a quite an intuitive process between educator and child, isn't it? It is. And in terms of measuring metacognition, like you say, a lot of it is through observation, seeing the child, you know, if we, we can literally see them pick up their book and flick back to a, a model example or a similar task that they've done before. We can see them use a resource on the wall in the classroom. And obviously we haven't been able to see that. The other way, though, that we can really see metacognition is through traces in their work. So when we look through their work, we can see that they've underlined words that they struggled with. We can see that they've done self-correction. So there's some really good ways like that that we can also monitor and see when metacognition is happening. The other way we can do it is by asking them to talk aloud and tell us, you know, what are you thinking when you look at this task? So as I say, this is the core model that we now use around metacognition. We call it the metacognitive process. So in terms of what metacognition is and what it would look like, it's around this and I've, I've exemplified a little bit the planning phase but then through the monitoring during the task we'd be wanting them also to access their knowledge of task strategies and self and then as an evaluation after the task do the same and then something that, that my colleague and I reflected on when we were doing this and as I say we've done lots and lots of training with, with different people was that interestingly most teachers recognized that they didn't do knowledge of self as much as they could that, and, and that was actually one that they recognised that the children struggled with more as well. And so they, they said, right, well, that's one that I definitely need to work on in my classroom. And then we were like, OK, well, we need to give people a resource to help them to do that. So that led us to creating this document. So what you have here is for each of the nine boxes, you have some suggested prompt questions that you could ask the child. Actually, on here, it's phrased as if the child was saying it themselves. So this is very much what a metacognitive child would be saying at each stage of themselves. So, you know, do I understand what the task is asking from me and so on? If we were wanting to support the child, we would say, do you understand what the person task? And obviously just rephrase them slightly in that way. And as you said, Cathy, I think it's really important that people take these and, and change the language. You know, these are very much suggested ones, but you might think I would never use that with a five year old. You know, in, in chemistry, we wouldn't ask it like that. We'd actually say this. So they're very much for you to take and change and adapt and amend to use with your own children. But hopefully it just um, exemplifies actually what these different phases would look like. What we've tried to do, if you look through and down the knowledge of task ones is come back to questions. So if, if they've started to do something in the planning phase, come back to it in the monitoring and back to it in the evaluation. 
I think what I really like to do with these questions is that colleagues often say, oh, I do this. I just didn't realize I was doing that at that point. So again, it's coming back to the idea of this isn't about starting to do everything differently. It just, it really helps me to focus in and say, do you know what, I do that in the planning phase, but not so much in the monitoring phase. And just focus in on where you could maybe support a little bit more explicitly. I think you're trying to move uh, professionals away from the sort of patchiness in ineffective teaching and, and towards a much more rigorous approach that then becomes habit. Absolutely. And think about, you know, oh, I do that sometimes, but maybe not explicitly and maybe not planned into my lessons to do that at that time. So if a child is struggling, then I might start asking these questions, but it's modeling them ourselves, you know, showing when we talk aloud ourselves, when we're answering a question that we're asking these questions of ourselves and making them become habits in the classroom. So it's it, it seems to me with knowledge of self, even though that's kind of you know, in the third column, isn't there, isn't it a fruitful approach at the beginning of any school year for, for young people, for children to, to think about how they learn, what they enjoy about learning, what they struggle with, and to take time to reflect on that column before any academic learning starts? Definitely. Absolutely. I think really encouraging children to think about what is an effective learner and what, what are my behaviours and my behaviours in line with that is really powerful. And, and just encouraging reflection and, and us being honest as well. You know, we can't expect the children to be honest about this unless we say ourselves. So being really open with, with the children about how I know that I tend to get a bit distracted. So when I'm working, I need to make sure I work in a really quiet space away from music, away from other things. And, and you know, really model that because if not, they can't be open and honest about their own learning behaviours. And I think that's an absolutely brilliant way to start the year and also to reflect on what lockdown learning was like, what we all learned about ourselves as well. And as you say, modelling it, whether you're a parent or a teacher is absolutely fundamental, isn't it? And I think my experience of working with colleagues is that primary schools do this really, really well, really well. Um, it's, it's part of their practice. They're brilliant at doing it. And at secondary, we're not so good at it. I think it's almost... We don't like to show a weakness. We don't tend to talk about what we find hard and those challenges. It's very much about us being the specialist in the room. And I've learned so much from working with primary colleagues about how they do this and particularly around knowledge of self. In fact, I'm always recommending to teachers that on their door, sometimes they'll say this week I'm reading, you know, War and Peace. But actually, I think it's much more effective now to, to, to say what you're struggling with or what you're trying to learn in your life outside school, I'm trying to learn how to skateboard or I'm trying, I'm struggling with this or I'm thinking about this or that there is a discomfort in learning and growth. And I think what you're sort of helping us with here is sort of moving us successfully through that discomfort. And I think also, and celebrating that discomfort because if from what we know about memory and, and you know, desirable difficulties, if you're not struggling, if you're not really trying to grapple with something new, then you're not learning. You're just going over stuff you already knew. And that's not cool. That's not exciting. What's really great is when we get to the end of the lesson, we think, wow, that really hurt my head. You know, I had to really think about that. And I think we need to model that ourselves that, you know, I find this lesson really challenging, but I love that. That's a good thing. Not, I find this really hard. Oh, that's rubbish. Because we can't expect the students to embrace challenges if we don't model that ourselves. 
And of course, that has implications for how we are praising children, what we're praising them for, what we're valuing. So that's, again, something I talk a lot about. Culture, isn't it? It's huge. The whole culture of your classroom, the wider school, you know, the rewards policies, definitely. It's huge. And also alignment between home and school, because as I always say, what's the point of praising children for effort and perseverance in school if they're being berated at home for not getting 100 percent in their spelling test? So everybody has to be working from the same hymn sheet. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this lovely um, diagram, sort of if you give us a sort of a, a classroom example of pretend you know what this might look like per column just a little bit of, of if from your own experience of seeing it absolutely and- so as I say I think that it, it's very much I like to use it as a bit of an audit tool to see where a child is already being less cognitive because I don't need to jump in and support them on all nine of the steps necessarily I might do but it's seeing so saying to the child right so what's this task asking you to do talk me through this task and then as they start to talk through that, we can say, right, I might need to ask some of these more specific questions and say, well, have we done anything like this before? You know, shall we flick back in our book and give them some prompts there? Or they might be fine with that so we can move on. It might be that it's the strategy that they don't understand what to do, or it might be just a lack of motivation. And what we do know is that motivation and their their, their um, real drive and desire to persevere is really linked to competence is linked to their belief that I can do this and so their knowledge of self and their motivation is really linked to their knowledge of task as well so if they think about that question have I done one of these before yes and I did really badly on it that's going to really influence and impact on how much they feel like actually you know I'm motivated to persevere with this and, and how it makes me feel. So the boxes aren't, aren't quite as separate as it implies on this model, as, as we know with any model. It, it's a bit oversimplistic in that way because actually they really do link together there. I wonder, Kathy, do you want me to talk through the next image a little bit? Yes, please. So this image, you, you mentioned before, Kathy, about scaffolding. So this is a scaffolding framework. So I'm just going to give people a minute to have a quick look at that. So it's a seven-step model, activating prior knowledge, uh, retrieving previously learned information. So does that happen quite subconsciously? Oh, yeah, I know this. I've done this before, you might hear a child say. So what what I would say here is that the boxes down the side, so the, the white box, the white aspect of the box is the teacher or the parent, And the blue bit is the pupil. So actually, we would suggest that this is largely led not by the pupil. So what we need to do here is we need to think very, very carefully about, and this is where curriculum planning comes in so much, what is the essential background knowledge for a child to be able to understand today's task? Not everything. So if I'm talking about volcanoes today, what is everything they know about volcanoes? It's what are the essential things that we've done about volcanoes a child must understand in order to access today's lesson and actually what we know is if you don't have that essential background knowledge you're going to take less from today's lesson so I think it's it's really important at this point that if any of the children don't have that prior knowledge that we stop and we address that and don't just plow on regardless it's been quite exciting to see that Ofsted have really recognized that actually in their latest frameworks that the need to 
activate that and react to it as well, not just carry yeah. on. That's gorgeous. So at the beginning of a classroom lesson, effective teaching is about reflecting back and retrieving that knowledge from the last lesson. Yeah, and that's why the arrow right at the end comes back up. We must make sure that we're coming back all the time. And I read something recently was saying about it's about layering up concepts really carefully. And I love that idea. It is. Our our lessons need to be cumulative. It's that spiral curriculum, isn't it? Coming back and back and back. So this could be entirely teacher-led. So it could be saying, this is the essential background knowledge. It could be through a quiz. It could be through getting the children on mini whiteboards to say, write down everything you know about volcanoes. And then you can go around the room and see very, very quickly who does and who doesn't have that essential background knowledge. So there's lots of different ways to do that. But as I say, the key thing is here, address any gaps before you move on. Julie, one of the things that you've made me think about, which is completely new, is the, the strong link between that point and, you know, low attaining children or children who are disadvantaged? Because if a child happens to have been on holiday to Mount Etna, they and be, you know, able to do so, they'll be much more in such a state of enhanced knowledge and much more knowledgeable compared to a child who has never had that experience. Definitely. Absolutely. What we're kind of going a bit more into some of the other aspects of cognitive psychology, but in terms of what we know about memory and cognitive load, children can only hold so much information in their short-term memory, in their working memory. So what we need, if if we have one child who's got all this information they already know in their long-term memory, they can take this little bit of new learning, combine it into their long-term memory. We have another child who didn't have that in their long-term memory, you're just overloading, and therefore they won't take anything from today's lesson. So it is so important, absolutely, those children who haven't had the experiences and therefore don't have the prior knowledge, or those children who have missed lessons, like you say, attendance, absence issues are a real barrier here. But it, I think it's it's recognizing that, and also forgetting, um, let's you know, embrace forgetting. Forgetting will happen. Children will have forgotten a lot of what we did last lesson. And, and don't be don't be disappointed by that. That's normal. That's how memory works. So actually, I, I certainly wouldn't expect happy people to remember everything we're saying today. That's fine. But what I think we do when we do a presentation like this is think what are the key things I want people to take away and how will I emphasize those to make sure they do stick and that's what we're doing here in our lesson is thinking right well I know they won't remember everything on volcanoes but what are the absolute essentials you need to know they're the ones I need to activate so it's being as I say it comes back to curriculum design here really effective planning working together as a department or a key stage and thinking about what is it that the children need to know at this point and having that planned into our schemes of learning because that first step is so so important okay well i totally get the first point thank you that's very exciting so once we've done that and it's not easy it's a, this is this is certainly not an easy framework and many people will recognize and think this is very much like rose and Shine's principles of instruction it is very very similar to that so again it's not something that's totally new it's just a brilliant framework to think about as I say, through those boxes, it's, it's about shifting responsibility. So we can see at the start, responsibility is very much the teachers. Throughout the process, it, it shifts to the learner. And I like to think of it as this idea of the teacher moving from being a coach to being a sympathetic and supportive audience throughout. So the next box, the explicit strategy instruction, is very much teacher-led. And this is the new learning. So this is where you explain how to do a task or you tell them some new content. This is, as I say, it is the new learning. Really important at this point that we address misconceptions. Again, working together 
as a team to think about what are the common misconceptions at this point. Being really careful of the curse of knowledge. As an expert, we might expect children to have a certain understanding. Don't expect anything. Make sure it's really step-by-step -step explanations, not to overwhelm some of these novice learners. And, and do that, so as I say, really step-by-step -step teaching them the new learning there. But step three is massive, it's modelling. And most effective teachers plan modelling. They don't just do it on an ad hoc basis. They really plan in what model will I use? Why will I use it that way? And again, multiple models can be useful here. So my colleague, the fabulous Alex Quigley, defines modelling as this idea of revealing the thought processes of an expert learner. And I love that idea. The purpose of modelling is for you to demystify this and to show the children how you think as an expert learner. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that, to thinking aloud, which is really useful, and um, to remove the mystery for children about how you um, go through and, and approach a problem. It might be through watching a video. It might be through other children modeling. But I'd, I'd strongly suggest actually multiple models here. Um, so you might model and then the children model and so on. But also not only modeling how to do the task, but also coming back to what we talked about on the other side, really modeling the metacognitive processes. So modeling yourself being reflective, modeling yourself thinking, oh, I remember last time I did this task, I found this really hard. So I'm going to do this. So Modelling is huge. And actually, I think we found in the guidance report when it talks about modelling that many teachers think, oh, yeah, I do that and skips it. And actually, I haven't seen that much really effective modelling. I think most of us could do it even better. We do it, but that's not to say um, we do it as effectively as we could do. And Julie, it sounds one of the things that struck me when you were speaking is how powerful it is to make a little video of how the teacher thinks through doing a sum, problem solving, answering a GCSE geography question. How do they think as they move through that question? And that can be evergreen material that a subject uh, a department could easily create for, for parents and students. Absolutely. Just as I say, demystifying that, showing how does an expert geographer think about this? I think you're right. It's so, so powerful. And there's lots of different ways to, to do that and go about it. And they don't have to be really time intensive, but it's more about, again, it's that curriculum planning. So thinking about on this task, how am I going to model? Why am I going to model that? Thinking about last time we did model to children, really thinking, why did I choose to do that? Was it just because a child didn't understand, so I then reacted to that? Or, you know, did my model maybe feed into some misconceptions? Could I have modeled differently? Uh, so it's just really thinking about that and how we do it. Julie, would and you then, recommend, sorry. sorry, as a classroom teacher, do you recommend, is this something teachers already do, having some sort of reflective journal per class where you really think heavily about what happened what what didn't work what worked sharing that with colleagues is that something that's too much to ask or is it useful no, i think we see that done really effectively by some people and, and not so much by others but the more collaborative you know like you say talking to colleagues you know let's not do this in isolation let's work together and say how did you model in that lesson how did the children react to that and and also think learning from our mistakes like you say just being reflective is so powerful Okay, so we're on to the memorization of strategy. So at this point, we're checking that the children have understood what we've done up to now. Checking for any misconceptions. So that can be through some questioning 
I'd really strongly suggest you don't direct one question to one child because that doesn't tell us that everybody's understood. So mini whiteboards are fabulous here. Everybody holds it up so we can check that everyone has understood before we move on. So this is a really important role of the teacher at this point, but obviously the pupils are really feeding into that. Once we know that that has happened and that they have understood, there's no misconceptions, we can move on to guided practice. And this is such an important section. I don't think there's many teachers here who would say, oh, I don't do guided practice, but most of us don't do enough. So this is where we have multiple tasks within the guided practice. And I would just say at this point, this is a framework and don't feel bound to it. It needs to be flexible and responsive. So you might decide, actually, I want to embed reflection throughout it. I don't want it as prescriptive as this. So don't feel bound to this. And also, I think, yeah, I think that that's really important to do. And you might not feel this is appropriate to do within one lesson. You, I have seen people do it within one lesson. I've also seen people do it over a sequence of lessons. So you use it very much as how you see fit. So multiple op opportunities for children to engage in guided practice, starting obviously with the simpler tasks and increasing in difficulty. So research suggests that there, there's three different types of guided practice. And ideally, we would do all three. Teacher guided practice, reciprocal teaching where the children teach each other and then some small group work as well so trying to give opportunities you can see that guide practice will take a, a substantial significant amount of time here you might have cue cards that the children can use here there might be a sheet that they have out as well that helps them while they do a task lots of different ways we can do that and it's so important that we regulate the difficulty here and think about who needs more guided practice and responds to the children in the room at this point. And this is where I sometimes find that it is really interesting to, to talk to parents and to talk to, to teachers about what is scaffolding? What does it mean? And in terms of scaffolding, it refers to a temporary framework. Well, that means you must remove it at some point. And yet so often, particularly with our SEND pupils, they don't ever get to the independent practice. Well, you haven't scaffolded them. You've just made the task easier. That's not scaffolding. If we're scaffolding, we'll put in more guided practice for those children, but everybody should still get to independent practice. And I often yeah. don't see that. There should be a real sense of progression and sort of build up in self-efficacy and confidence rather than just constant scaffolding, scaffolding. A hundred percent. And well, if not, you're not, you're just... Well, you're differentiating and that's fine, but it's not scaffolding. So if that's what you're wanting to do, and, and if all the children are going to be expected to do this assessment at the end, well, they all need to give that opportunity to do yeah. that independent practice as well. I really love the idea. I can imagine a gorgeously busy, effective classroom with, in the context of guided practice that has a lot of diversification. So lots of different tools in the teacher toolbox to test that knowledge, to use that peer-to-peer -peer gorgeous um, aspects of pupils helping one another and also at, at helping each other iron out misunderstandings as well. Definitely, and it's hard work because you're responding to individual needs, working out who needs a bit more support here, who doesn't, what's going on here. So, you know, this isn't easy. And, and it, you know, the bigger your class, obviously, the more challenging it is, the more diverse the needs of the children as well you know the, the more challenging that is but it is so so powerful and but as i say the independent practice we cannot forget the importance of that if we keep scaffolds in place if we keep supports in place the children 
don't learn how these things become automatic. They need to have that opportunity to do it by themselves. And the, again, extensive independent practice, not just a now you do one by yourself. You know, that quite a few tasks for them to do here by themselves is really powerful. I think an important reflection on independent practice is that if you ever set homework, you're expecting children to do independent practice. How much have you set up and supported them with guided practice beforehand, explicitly teaching it? You know, how much do we do that? Or do we say, right now, there's your independent practice, go off and do it. And we wonder why many of the children really struggle with that. So I think absolutely. It's just- I think that I was just thinking so many children are just put in the deep end and actually it can be very damaging for their self-esteem. They think they're never going to get this. They sort of we've missed all those steps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thinking very carefully about what do you set for homework? Is that appropriate? Does it build on the guided practice they did in the classroom? Are they absolutely clear? Have, have you checked they understood what it was? Did you model it before and so on? You know, really think through those other steps. And I think often my reflection would be when I've set homework no I haven't and I've set it at the end and I've said everyone understand but of course they say they do because they just want to leave you know that if you've got to set thinking about when you set that independent practice it is really powerful. Julie is it not much more efficient for homework to to come in at the point at which they're trying to either memorize something because obviously the parent can play a much more easily active role when they're they have to ask their child a question they're you know rather than making the homework that we doing that task completely on their own when they're tired at the end of a school day the timing of the homework and what it contains matters Oh, 100% thinking about what you're setting, it's appropriateness, you know, not only what resources children have and, and which children don't assume that everybody will have somebody who, who's free to support them with it. And what you set, I think, yeah, absolutely needs really careful consideration. Hence why the evidence around homework is, is very varied, because it's not about let's just set homework, it's what you set, how you set it. Mm-hmm. So again, it's implementation, isn't it? So structured reflection, what could be done differently next time? Again, this is probably something people don't have a lot of patience for, but it's actually incredibly important. Lots of the questions that we talked about on the previous slide, you know, what what did I do and how could I do it differently? This can be done individually. So getting the children to reflect, but you'd, you'd really structure that. So have some questions you want them to reflect on. You might also use talk partners where they work together and discuss something again it needs to be carefully structured just giving children that chance to look over their work review what they learned see the bigger picture but again reflect on themselves as learners which then will inform when they come to do the task again so thinking about how did my emotions and my motivation affect my performance how could I motivate myself differently in the future so bringing those aspects of um, understanding themselves as a learner in here as well as my performance on the task, also myself as a learner is so important here. And I think often reflection can be more focused around achievement rather than learning behaviours. One of the things you're making me think about, I'm so passionate about school reports, and I think that they're undervalued, underused, and often not really achieving anything in terms of you know, uh, helping a child reflect or or a family reflect on how their child is progressing at school. What this makes me think about is 
after a child receives a school report or family receives a school report in June, July, that should be a springboard for a conversation about their learning. And I think we should take that document. I always use that document with my own children as a little coaching tool before September. What did the teacher say about your learning, about how you approach learning in June or July? How can we now think about what we can do differently or continue to do well this term. And I think school reports take up so much teacher time, but they're not used effectively within family life. And they could be exciting documents to return to in September, because I believe it's incredibly important to hit the ground running. But you do that by thinking about this question of what is an effective learner? Am I an effective learner? What is it that I need to improve or what is it that I need to sustain? And I think school reports could be used in a much more efficient way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think motivation is such an important one to reflect on there because children aren't either motivated or not motivated. You might have a child who really struggles to be motivated in maths, but when they're playing Fortnite on the computer, they're they're really well motivated. You know, it's not one or the other. So it's thinking about very much their motivation in those moments and saying, well, are there some subjects, are there some lessons, are there some aspects, um, some tasks that you struggle to motivate yourself on? You know, what can we learn about? Well, you're really motivated when you do that in PE, but not when you're asked to do your written comprehension activities in English. So what can we learn from that? What can we do differently? So I think really, really encouraging children to get a bit deeper beneath things than just am I motivated or not, which are quite end up making them a bit black and white when it's not that straightforward. And of course, the other thing is that within fact, you talked about culture earlier, classroom culture, school culture, but within family culture, it's important that we all normalize mistakes Uh, try and really as hard as it is as a parent because we're so emotionally invested in their success uh, I think it's important that we say oh everybody makes mistakes I've made a mistake modeling making mistakes showing our children that we value the effort and the perseverance and that is easier said than done but again I think it is incredibly important because I've seen certainly in my work children becoming very very anxious about their performance and not even want to attempt a task and that has been a result of lockdown where everyone has been incredibly stressed and everyone you know has on occasion lost their temper and uh, you know parents have been put in a very difficult position and I think we just need to recalibrate this relationship with learning in general. Oh definitely and I think again primaries do that really well celebrating mistakes to event and then the, what can we learn from that discussing that as a group Whereas I think at secondary, again, it's more just this, you know, don't make mistakes. You punish for mistakes. It's a different way of doing it. I've got a, a little 18-month-old, little boy, and it was really interesting the other day. I, I, I can't remember what it is that I did. But I said, oh, that was really silly. Mummy was really silly. She made a mistake. And I was like, no, that, what? I can't believe I used that language. That's not silly because I made a mistake. That, you know, I made a mistake. And what will I do differently because of it? And just thinking about some of that language, because that's teaching him that it's silly to make mistakes. And of course it's not. So I think it's just being aware of that language that we use around things. And and the more that we can talk aloud around, you know, this is how I felt when I did that. What what does mommy need to think about then differently so she doesn't do it next time and have those conversations. And as I say, early years do it really well. And what can we reflect on right through with children around how we do that? 
I love that. I mean, it's this is you talking as well. You know, we're, we constantly have to work on this relationship to making mistakes and, and just surface what we're, what we're learning. It's There's a rhythm to it. There's a resilience. It's an academic resilience, isn't it, as Absolutely. well? Emotional resilience and just articulating that constantly. That's exciting. Just thinking about yesterday, we arrived at an airport and my husband had misread the ticket. So we were late for the plane. And it's so easy to jump to the emotional response of why did you do that? Or how could you have made such a mistake? (laughs) I was just thinking about, you know, in this moment of stress, we are modeling to our children. Absolutely. We expect them to behave when they make a mistake. And I was very happy to hear my husband say, right, this is a lesson in how not to do things. but I think all families all have to think about their relationship to mistake making and that's a good thing to dwell on as we approach September and also recognize that we are human and we'll say you know we'll say something at the moment but then to go back to it and talk to children and say you know what I was thinking about when we said that and it was a bit unfair actually because you know dad was rushing and it wasn't his fault and like he said we need to learn so let's not berate ourselves when we we will make as I say it's about changing habits it's massive but just having that dialogue that reflective conversation and not telling it to children but engaging them in it I think is is really powerful I mean Oliver just ignores everything I say anyway at the moment but I'm sure (laughs) one day he'll be very reflective definitely definitely (laughs) there was a teacher on Twitter the other day and I was I've been thinking about it so much that she's an NQT and she was writing on Twitter that she had uh, been dwelling on a class a classroom experience that just hadn't worked none of the children had learned what she had expected them to learn by the end of the lesson. And I thought she is going to make a fantastic teacher because she publicly said, you know what? That did not work. I need to go back. I thought that is great teaching where you're able to say, I need, I need help here. This, why has that not worked? Puzzling it out. I think as well, when we're, when we're learning to be a teacher, there's a lot of, we're encouraged to do that as part of our training. And I think it's it's continuing to do that as we go through and become more experienced that actually we need to keep reflecting. We need to keep working together and asking these questions and, and thinking. And, and, and I think it's, I love working with training teachers because they make me reflect because um, we'll talk about, well, why did we do the lesson this way? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know, there's some great questions. So I think it's, it's trying to keep that all, the, you know, continue to be a learner, isn't it, forever. So, Julie, tell us a little bit for people listening. It is a sea of literature and the metacognitive literature is so extensive. And as you know, teachers are very, very busy. We have mentioned the Education Endowment Foundation. We've also tried to simplify the material within that toolkit here. But are there any other little books, resources, other things that you would, if you had to pick maybe top three that you really think educators should be paying attention to? Yeah, well, as you've mentioned there, you've got the Education Endowment Foundation, the, the Metacognition Guidance Report. I think that's really, really worth a look at. And actually, if you go on the website, you can print that off for free. But there's also some extra resources that go alongside it. So check those out. I, I would really strongly suggest that you, you think about your own children and what their needs are and maybe focus on one recommendation. So that might be developing independent learners using the scaffolding framework, for example. So try and go really specific there. 
I absolutely love, I've got it here actually just next to me, this book. It's absolutely brilliant. And a lot of the things that I've, I've used a little snippet are from this book. So this is the Metacognition Handbook by Jennifer Webb that just came out in May last year. Absolutely brilliant, really accessible. It does say Practical Guide for Teaching School Leaders, but I think it's brilliant for parents as well. So that book by Jennifer Webb, the Metacognition Handbook, I would really strongly suggest. There's also some brilliant blogs across the Research School Network. There's been some great ones. There was one very recently, I think it was last month, by the East London Research School, which was about self-regulation in the early years foundation stage, and it was amazing. So also, if you can, you know, if you are on Twitter and you can follow things like that, the blogs that come out around metacognition are absolutely brilliant. And just, I think, Kathy, what we talked about at the start about help you just see it in practice, and, you know, people just talking about this is how it actually looks in the classroom. Going beyond the theory, I think, is really powerful. So that would be my three, would be the blogs. And I would definitely start with that East London Research School one about in the early years. It's book by Jennifer Webb and the, um, the guidance report itself. And if, say, you're a science teacher listening to this or a maths teacher, are there sort of specific podcasts or resources for subject leaders or do- departments that they should pay greater attention to that's a really good question i certainly think that the the framework the, the seven step model i've seen used right across subjects i've seen it used in science and math i've seen it used in art and um, in drama in a real range and as i've seen it used right from early years through to post 16 so i think the resources within it work equally well across them so i don't think there is a particular need. i think there's a need for discussion with your colleagues around you know and how does this look to us? And not even just for our subject, but for the children we teach. You know, you might have high rates of disadvantage in your school. You might not. You know, thinking about the actual, the children, the needs of those people in your classroom, I think probably leads it more than the actual subject itself. Yeah, I think what I'm left with is, you know, I'm always asked by schools to give talks on sort of aspiration. And, you know, this is the perfect place to begin with effective teaching and learning. And rather than, you know, thinking about sort of potentially other ideas and schemes that people might associate with aspiration, but ultimately children need to feel successful in the classroom. And that's that's why scaffolding is so powerful, because it gives them that opportunity to experience success, have that belief in themselves, the confidence, which then leads to their motivation. It's that thing of you can't make children motivated before they've achieved. You've got to support them to achieve. And that then increases. Well, Julie, I wish I was in your classroom. I oh. wish my... <laughs> it must Thank be an amazing me. place to be, especially because you teach psychology and I'm a criminologist, so I'm fascinated by all of that. Uh, and you're a parent of a young child, a superwoman. This is amazing. Well, it's a very naughty young child, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I need to pass on to that right now. Listen, thank you so much for sharing your amazing knowledge. And I hope we get to speak again. And I will certainly be sharing this broadcast far and wide with as many teachers and parents as I can possibly find. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.